Good morning. How you doing? Go ahead and give somebody a high five. Shake somebody's hand. Welcome them to Church at the Bridge. Hey, listen, here at Church at the Bridge, we take seriously what the Word says. I don't know if you've ever thought of this. I was sharing this with our, our, our uh, volunteers uh, before our first service. And I was uh, sharing with them about the recipe for the kingdom of God and how the church works. Don't mind me. I'm getting a little propped together for something we're doing here today. Um, but, uh, you know, if you look at the early church, they devoted themselves to a few things. They devoted themselves to hearing the word, the study of the word. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to fellowship. That's just a churchy words that means relationship, relationship with each other. And they devoted themselves to God. And here's the thing. They grew. They didn't just grow in number. They grew individually. They grew as people. And can I just say something to you that my job here today is not trying to convince you of anything. That's not my job. My job is not to convince you of Jesus, to convince you of God. My job is to simply challenge you to consider some truth, to consider something about God and to see how that relates to your life. And I guarantee you where there's an entrance to consider what God says, this change. And I don't know about you, but I could certainly use some change. We can all use some change. None of us have arrived. And so today we're picking up where we left off um, in our series, uh, Christmas at the Movies. And what we're doing is just having some fun. We're having some fun. We're looking at some themes uh, from some Christmas classics, some movies, and pulling some themes from them and exploring what the Word of God has to say about them. Now, if I could just preface our next, uh, the clip we're about to watch. Christmas is not about shopping. You guys know that, right? You do know that, right? You know that, right? Christmas is not about all the deals on Amazon or Ebates. You know, you do know that, right? Christmas is not about the latest gadgets, although I love the latest gadgets. I'm a tech head. Um, Christmas is about Christ and Christmas. It's about the birth of the Savior of the world and what that announced unto all people and the implication that it has, the power that it has for our lives now. It's still at work now. And so today we're going to pick up where we left off and we're going to build upon what we've learned and we're going to start off by watching this quick movie clip. Just join in and watch this with us, if you would. There he is, Mr. Ebenezer Scrooge. Say, is it getting cold around here? Hmm. When a cold wind blows, it chills you, chills you to the bone. But there's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. It paints you with indifference like a lady paints with rouge. And the worst of the worst, the most hated and cursed, is the one that we call Scrooge. Unkind as any, and the wrath of many, this is Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh, there goes Mr. Humbug, there goes Mr. Grimm. If they gave a prize for being mean, the winner would be him. Old Scrooge, he loves his money cause he thinks it gives him power. If he became a flavor, you can bet he would be sour. <laughs> Even the vegetables don't like him. The undisputed master of the underhanded deed. He 
charges folks a fortune for his dark and drafty houses as poor folk live in misery. It's even worse for mouses. Please, sir, I want some cheese. He must be so lonely, he must be so sad. He goes to extremes to convince us he's bad. He's really a victim of fear and of pride. Look close and there must be a sweet man inside. Nah. <laughs> there goes Mr. Outrage. There goes Mr. Sneer. He has no time for friends or fun. His anger makes that clear. Don't ask him for a favor, cause his nastiness increases. No crust of bread for those in need. No cheeses for us, Mises. Scrooge liked the cold. He was hard and sharp as a flint, secret and self-contained, as solitary as an oyster. There goes Mr. Heartless. There goes Mr. Cruel. He never gives, he only takes, he lets his hunger rule. Cause Scrooge is getting worse Every day, in every way Scrooge is getting worse Humbug Alright, you guessed it A Christmas carol, but listen It's gotta be a Muppet Christmas carol Alright I had two versions of this. I had the original one that came out, I think it was like in the 30s or 40s. And uh, then I had this one, and my wife was like, we got to do the Muppet Christmas Carol. So I was like, all right, this is the one we're going with. But you guessed it. We're looking at a Christmas Carol. A Christmas Carol, and it's about this guy named Ebenezer Scrooge. I mean, listen, if anybody can be transparent here, we could just be real with ourselves. None of us like this guy. He's selfish. He's rude, he's mean, but listen, before we get on the bandwagon of dislike for him, I want us to consider what the real issue was for Ebenezer Scrooge in this story. Ebenezer Scrooge had no room for anyone in his heart. Just think about that. He had no room for anyone in his heart. See, life was about his needs, his interests, and his benefit. And the thing about it is that it's a common symptom that we find in life today. Let's be, let's be real, ladies and gentlemen. Every one of us at one time or another has been, will, or is at this very moment concerned more with ourselves than we are with others. We're more concerned with our interests and it's self-centeredness. And today I'd like to encourage you to make room for Jesus, to make room. Now, it's important for us to think about this because God is with us, is what the scripture declares. When God first came in the form of a man, the announcement that was made was to a young woman who was afraid, to an older gentleman who was afraid, to shepherds who were in the field who were disqualified according to the times of receiving anything from God by people they were disqualified. And the announcement was all the same, that God is with us, that God wants to establish peace with us, that God would come in the form of a man so that we 
could have relationship with God. And so because God is with us, we should always make room for him in our lives. Listen, this message was one of hope. This message was one of peace. This message was one of redemption. This message is one that literally benefits mankind. It brings nothing but the best. Who can't make some room for that in their lives? And so I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Start at verse 1. It says that in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. You got to appreciate something about what's happening here. Caesar Augustus was the ruling emperor of the known world of that day. Rome was it. Rome was boss. Rome ran the world's system. They overtook and conquered nations. And so the emperor, Caesar, makes a decree. He says, I want to know how many people are in the empire. And so what's that going to take? Watch what verse 2 says. It says, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. Listen to this. Because there was no guest room available for them. I want you to consider those last words there in verse 7. There was no room for what was about to happen. No room. There's no room at all. And so the announcement, how many moms do I have in here? Mamas, raise your hand, nice and proud. You give it up for our mothers, they are amazing. Oh, come on, we could do better than that for our moms. How about our dads? Yeah, yeah. Now I want you to think about this. As parents, some of you can appreciate this. Once you got past the initial shock that you were pregnant, right? Once you got past that point, it begins, it began to change your vision for life. All of a sudden, life takes on new meaning. All of a sudden, there's great promise. All of a sudden, your life is altered to such an extent that you are planning out this child's life. You're dreaming about their future. You're dreaming about the blessing that they'll be. You're, they're not even born yet. And so, this is where Mary and Joseph are. This child is about to be born. Let's think about what actually is happening. I need a volunteer, a brave soul, a lady, a young lady. Okay, there you go. I want you to take that little wrapped up child, but I want you to put it under your shirt as if you're pregnant, right? And I want you to envision this picture. Mary and Joseph have just returned to Bethlehem. And remember that the scripture says that there was a census. So here's what that means. Everybody 
had to go back to their neighborhood, to where they originally are from. So if you were from the Bronx, you would hike into the Bronx. If you were from Omaha, you would take in two buses or a plane, whatever you were doing. Everybody was coming back home to where they were from, where they were born. So can you imagine what that looks like if everybody from Newburgh came back to Newburgh that left Newburgh, wow. right? This place is packed. Get a visual of what's happening here. Bethlehem is overrun by people. Old friends, old family, old loved ones, people you had a, 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 a issue with, whatever it is. And so here, this older gentleman and his young wife-to-be, Mary, are walking around. And the Bible tells us that while they were there, the time comes to give birth. Right about now, Mary, the time's about... time. Oh, she's a, she's a professional. She... <laughs> No pain, no, yep, it's just, it's that time, right? So envision this, put yourself on the other side of the door. Starts off as a knock and you're saying, who's here? Who's knocking on the door? And all of a sudden it's, and as you hear this knock, you're clear that whoever's on the other side of that door, there's a sense of urgency. There's an insistence that you must come to the door and come quickly. And so when you finally get to the door, you find this young girl with the belly, and she says, I'm about to give birth. Now it's about the time when you start acting like you got pain, right? You remember those days, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, right? So, so it's, it's, it's it, listen, it's game time. Oh my God, please, right? And here's, man, you're really good at this. <laughs> So think about this. They're at the door and they're saying, I'm, she's saying, I'm about to give birth. Joseph is like, please, there's no, there's no room anywhere. Would you just give us a space? Let us in. But my betrothed is about to give birth. Let me ask you a question. You who are on the other side of the door at this time. Do you call her a cab? Do you tell her about your busy schedule? And all the errands that you have to run? Do you explain how cramped your home is with guests and family? Do you slam the door in the face? Or do you let her in? Thank you, Mary. Give it up for Mary. So listen, this was the predicament that Joseph and Mary were confronted with. The savior of the world is about to be born and they are seeking, they are searching, they are diligently, I mean, with great urgency, trying to find somewhere for Mary to give birth and no one will open the door. No one. Now, here's what I know about you. If a woman, whether you know her or not, is knocking on the door of your home and her water has broken and she's on the verge of literally giving birth, I think I can confidently say that none of you would slam the door in her face. I think that love and decency would kick in and you'd say, how can I help you? C come, come in, get on the phone, get me somebody, right? You jump into action. And so... The question 
beckons us all to consider what was it that was going on that these people had no room. Not just for a young mother about to give birth and a man frantic about his child being born in the middle of the street. What was it about this choice that people made that said, nah, there's no room for you here. Go find somewhere else. What was it? Why was there no room? What was it that stopped people then from making room for this child, this savior? And more importantly, here's another question to consider. What is it that stops us today potentially from making room in our lives for God, for Christ? And so we got to really consider what's really going on when there's no room. And look, this is an exhaustive topic I mean, we could go on months, probably years talking about this. So I just want to stick to the text today. I want to stick to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I want to dig into what was going on there. Certainly there are other things that stop us all, if we're not careful, from seeking a personal relationship with God, from growing in His truth, from drawing from His strength, from seeking His direction and guidance and wisdom and all those other good things and healing. So... In looking at the text, I want to propose to you a couple of things here that we can observe from the scripture. The first one being judgment and anger. Where'd you get that from, Pastor? I don't see that there. Well, if you just back up a couple of verses and you look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 24, you look at Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, if you explore the text, what you'll find is this. That the Bible says that Mary and Joseph get this announcement from an angel of God who tells them, you're going to bring forth the Savior of the world. And Joseph, you ain't got nothing to do with it. You are not the father. And Mary, when she received this message, she says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. I'm young. I've never been with a man. How is this possible? And God says to her, Chill out, baby. This is a work of God. The Holy Spirit is going to conceive a child in you, and you will call his name Jesus. You will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right? And so, in the midst of this, they get this message. The, the problem is that they were engaged. And back in those days, to have a child outside of wedlock was a death sentence. According to the Jewish law, it was considered adultery. And according to the Jewish norms and the law of the day, they were certainly destined to at the very least be stoned. And so the Bible says in Luke that there comes a time where Mary gets to the three-month mark of her pregnancy. And at that point, she goes way out yonder to her cousin Elizabeth's home. Now, you know what I, I, I want us to consider here? Isn't three months around the time where you kind of start showing a little bump? Right? All of a sudden, it's, it's no longer, ooh, did you put on some weight? Now it's, oh, how far off are you? And so I want you to think about what's happening here. 
Mary leaves the area where she's at. And why might she leave the area that she was at? Well, why was she afraid? It was frowned upon. I can assure you this, Mary was the talk of the town. And so Mary leaves and she goes to Elizabeth's house. And now all of a sudden what we find is that the ruling empire has decreed that there has to be a worldwide census. So you got to go back home. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. We got to go back to Bethlehem. We've got to go back to our hometown where everybody knows us. Everybody's heard about us. Everybody's aware of what we claim. And so they get back to Bethlehem. And I can assure you that this is kind of what it sounded like. There goes Mary, all quite contrary. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Check, check Check this fool out, Joseph. She told him that God is the father and he believes it. What a fool. Oh, we should just stone them right here in the middle of the square. So, now that we're kind of envisioning the reactions here to a Mary who's now fully showing and is unmarried, we have to consider what the Word of God says about judgment. Think about this. It says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, starting at verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. Let me just pause right there for a moment. Because in some circles, maybe you've come from, you know, a a Christian background of some sort or religious background. Maybe you've heard this verse before and what you've been taught is that if you stand in judgment of others, God will judge you. But let me ask you something. Where does it say that in this verse? What it says is, if you judge others, you yourself will be judged. Let me just give you a quick Bible fun fact. The scripture says that there is a day of judgment, but that day of judgment is yet to come. And on that day of judgment, people will not be judged for the good that they did or the bad that they did. There's one thing that will be judged for. Did you believe and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's what people will be judged for. That's that's the judgment day. So that's not what this is talking about here. It doesn't say that. So with that understanding, listen to this. It says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, if you stand in judgment of people, if you are judgmental, expect to reap what you've sown, is what the scripture is saying, right? And so verse three says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own? So I want us to visualize what the scripture is saying here. I want you to envision that our friend Jeff here has a little speck in his eye, right? A little speck. And we have a plank in ours, right? So get this visual. 
He's got a speck. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to hit you. And we've got a plank. Let me ask you a few questions to think about. Which one is more harmful, the speck or the plank? Which one? The plank, right? Which one causes more destruction to everyone around you and yourself? The speck or the plank? Plank, right? Which one should we be more concerned with? The speck or the plank? Get the picture of what Jesus is saying here. Listen to the truth. Here we are standing in judgment of others. And we're concerned with the speck in their eye. But he says, hey, the judgment in your eyes is more harmful. It's more destructive. See, some things that we have to consider about this plank is that this plank not only is harmful to you, it's harmful to everyone around you. You don't believe me? Stand up and let me just come by you with this plank. Trust me, it'll harm you, right? But not only is it harmful to those around you and harmful to you yourself, but it's also harmful in its ability to stop you from seeing clearly what God is trying to do in your life. That makes sense. That makes sense. And so, listen, this plank, this judgment, what we hold against others, Christ is saying, hey, the only person you're holding up is you. The only person you're harming is you. And watch what Jesus says about judgment. He says, you'll receive it to the same measure Lest we judge others, we ourselves will reap the very judgment that we don't want in our own lives from others. And so it's harmful. It keeps us from seeing. It blocks our ability to see anything that God is doing, to see the truth, to see a pathway to life, to see new opportunities. Let me tell you what Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 and 27 says about anger. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Let me just encourage you with something. Anger is not a bad thing. The Bible doesn't say that there's something wrong with anger. What it says is that when you're angry, don't do something sinful with it. So see, anger is like the engine light in your car. It goes off and it informs you, it indicates something is wrong here. You're about to go the wrong way. You have to address what's happening here. And so listen to the scripture. It says in your anger, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And listen closely. And do not give the devil a foothold. Now what's interesting about this word anger in the Greek is it's talking about wrath. It's talking about uncontrolled anger. It's talking about anger without borders. It's talking about blood red anger where you don't care about who's around you, what you say, how this turns out. At this point, it's just about me getting my point across, me making my point known, me establishing my dominance in this situation. It's an anger without borders. It's uncontrollable. And listen closely to what the scripture says. 
It says, when you're in that kind of anger, it says, don't allow it. Don't allow yourself to get to such a place where you do something sinful. Don't let another day go by without the, with the sun going down that you don't deal with the thing that you have come to believe that has driven you to this uncontrolled anger. And it gives us the reason why. Listen, uncontrolled anger, anger without borders, is to make a bed with Satan himself. Listen to what the scripture says in verse 27. If we could put that up, please. And do not give the devil a foothold. It's literally us going, come on, Satan, you're welcome here. You know what Jesus said about him? He's a thief and he only comes for three reasons. To steal, to kill, and to destroy you. How about that one? Anger. Uncontrolled anger. See, you can't be in bed with Satan by the way of your anger and judgment and have room for Jesus and the healing that he brings. And literally what happens here is that Joseph and Mary show up in Bethlehem and is it possible that one of the reasons why nobody would let them in is because of their story? You expect me to believe that you are bearing the son of God? Get out of here, Mary. Scram, Joseph. Are you crazy? Get me a stone, somebody, so I can kill these people. There's another reason why we have to consider why there was no room here. Listen, it's the value that we place on people. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. In the middle of a worldwide census in the known world of the day, everyone is going back to their hometown, which means that Bethlehem was run over with people and all the inns were booked with people. In the midst of all this, Joseph and Mary are looking for somewhere to stay, to give birth to this child, and no one has room for them because they have too many people staying with them. See, all these innkeepers, all these people chose to shut the door on them because the people they had with them added something to them of greater value than the ones trying to get in. Think of it this way. Relationships. People. What do we get from them? Comfort. Security. Money. Affirmation. We draw a sense of self-esteem. You don't believe me? Let me ask you a question. I don't know you from anywhere, sir. What's your name? Elijah. Elijah, I'm Jose. Nice to meet you. And let's just suppose that for the very first time we meet and I go, oh, what are you doing here? How'd that rub you? Wrong, Wrong, right? Dead wrong, right? You'd probably shut the door on me, right? You'd never come back to this church. I wouldn't blame you either. I wouldn't blame you either. See, I want you to think about this. That we value people based upon what they bring to us. How they speak to us. What they add to us. Now, let's try that again. Hey, man, how are you, man? What's your name? 
Hey, Elijah, I'm Jose, man. Nice. Can I get you a cup of coffee, man? Would you like that? Can we please get this gentleman a cup of coffee? Excuse me, cafe. Can we get this gentleman a cup of coffee, please? How would that make you feel? All of a sudden, the experience is different. So watch this. While it's a gesture, there's a value added to it. And so here come Mary and Joseph. Oh, Mike, I can't do it as good as you, Carol, but oh, oh, please, Joseph, I'm about to give birth. Mary, I'm trying, I'm trying. Can you please let us in? We're about to give birth here. And door after door, household after household, in after in, here's the response they get. Nah, not here. Humbug. Got no room for you. Why? Because I'm already full with people. And I've guaranteed them a bed for a couple of weeks. So you see, I'm going to draw some income from that. Oh, you don't understand. I haven't seen these people in years. We're going down memory lane. Man, all the things that we did, our childhood, that first love, that first vacation, all those things that we enjoyed. Remember when we were in school? Yeah, remember when you did that in class? Remember when we got in trouble? Remember when we were about to get caught and we got away? All those things, companionship, security, memories, money, comfort. And it was all for the same reasons that we tend to keep people in our lives today. Look, there's nothing wrong with relationships. There's nothing wrong with them. Here's where it becomes a problem, though. When we value people above God. When we value friendships above God. When we value what we get from these relationships above God. That's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to be. Listen to what Jesus says about this particular uh, topic. In Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. It says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus replies, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom. There is something interesting that I note here in these verses. I didn't write this in my notes, but just an observation. That there were many people that followed Jesus, but there were only a select few people that Jesus told, follow me. Listen closely to what I'm saying here. There were, when Jesus told people, follow me, he was inviting them to be his personal disciple. You know what I believe? This is just an opinion. I didn't say that the word says this. I believe that most likely there were supposed to be more than 12 apostles. But some of them missed it. Why? Because something else came first. Consider the words here. Consider what's happening here. Jesus says, come follow me. And he says, Lord, First, let me go and bury my father. 
what's wrong with that, man? He just lost his dad, you know. How hard must this be? And Jesus isn't unsympathetic to this guy, but what he says is, basically what he's saying is this, your father's already dead. And I'm inviting you to pursue something that is a journey for life. And so let the dead bury the dead. You, you go and do what I've called you to. You go and proclaim the kingdom. You go and follow my plans and purposes. You discover the blessing that I have for your life. You discover the direction in which I'm leading you, which is a path of good that brings you peace and hope. The other guy says, yeah, 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 I'll follow you, Jesus. But first, let me go back to my family. And uh, yeah, just just want to say goodbye to them. Right over there, Jesus. I'll, I'll be right back. I'm just going to go say bye to them. Right over there. And as he turns his back to Jesus and he's walking towards his family, Jesus says something very interesting. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow. You got to understand what he's saying here. A plow has one purpose. To break ground. To prepare the ground for a harvest. Right? And so here Jesus, here's what Jesus is saying. No one who puts their hands with the intent to receiving all that I'm giving them in the kingdom through this harvest and looks back can receive it. What do we learn here? What are we seeing here? You know what we learn here? Jesus is trying to lead us to life. Jesus is pointing us to the kingdom. Jesus is calling us to a place of harvest, of fruitfulness. But you know what gets in the way of that? When we follow people instead of following God. When we follow people instead of following God. So I want to encourage you with this. Don't follow people. Follow God. Don't follow after the next hip thing that's happening. Follow God. Don't seek after what people say is the in thing, the in crowd. No, you follow God. Because here's what scripture declares, that when you put your hand to the plow to break ground and you keep looking forward, you'll produce that harvest. You'll produce it. You know, it's the last thing that we see here. That these people did not know that it was God among them. As I said before, Bethlehem was full of people. The streets were filled with people bustling to and from. And among them were Joseph, Mary, and a miracle. God with us. Jesus. Now, certainly none of you here have bought into the madness of going to the malls and shopping and doing all that. You're smart, right? You do online, right? Listen, Mondays is, is, is the day off that Pastor Ned and I have. And we try to guard that day. But that's also the day where we kind of catch up on everything. Uh, chores, uh, errands, uh, shopping. And so this past Monday, we, we decided, you know, we got to go take care of a few things. Let's, let's go out there. And we, we head out. And one of the reasons why we enjoy going out and running our errands and doing our shopping on Mondays is because nobody's there. Well, guess what? We show up to the mall and everyone and their mother is there. It was packed. There were kids in the mall. And I'm saying to myself, is there no school today? 
And so get this picture. Bethlehem is packed. And the reason why I share that with you is because it's easy to miss people in the sea of people. Let me tell you what I mean. You're walking in a mall and you are pressed shoulder to shoulder and everybody's kind of moving along like cattle. And it's very hard to notice who's in the crowd. All you see is a sea of people. Well, in the same way, it's easy to miss God if we don't see him at work through people. I'll tell you what I mean by that. To the naked eye in Bethlehem, they saw a man named Joseph and a young pregnant girl named Mary. But upon closer review of the scriptures, what we see was that God was doing something in them and through them. And the problem with people not being able to receive Jesus was that they missed that God was still at work through people. Consider Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. It says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality, listen, to angels without knowing it. Don't you think about what the scripture's saying there? God shows up at times and he's walking amongst us and we're not even aware of it. You know, when God decided that it was time, the right time to reach out to mankind and reveal himself, you know what he didn't do? He didn't open all the heavens and go, ta-da, here I am. Excuse me, everyone. I'm here. God, yep, look over. No, that's not what he did. The book of Philippians tells us that Jesus did not consider it robbery to leave his throne in heaven and become like men. When God decided to reveal himself to the world, he came as a man. The reason why I share that with you is because the story of Christmas is still unfolding today because God is still working through people. Let me share a thought with you. That person that invited you today wasn't your neighbor. That person that reached out to you and said, man, come to church with me today wasn't just some random person. It was God. God is at work. That person who's been praying for you and you've been going, oh man, get get away from me with that Jesus stuff. I don't want to hear that. I don't want this religious stuff. It's not your mom. It's not your aunt. It's not your friend. It's God at work. That person who remains consistent in their love for you and for God, even when you don't deserve it, it's God at work. I can tell you something from personal experience, my own personal story, that my first encounter with Jesus was not in a church service. My first encounter with Jesus wasn't a heavy revy from the Bible that I went, oh, I got it. I met Jesus 
through a mother that refused to give up on a son who was rebellious, who was infatuated with the streets and everything that it offered. I met Jesus through someone who loved me even when I was unlovable. Listen, every one of us has someone in our corner. Every one of us has someone praying. Every one of us has someone that as many times as we reject them, they come back and they say, I still love you and I still believe God's promises about you and I'm not giving up on you. Every one of us has someone that reaches out and isn't trying to push us down, but is literally trying to give us a hand up. Listen, God is at work. God is still in the business of showing up as a man through people. I'll share with you a true story. A friend of mine used to work for the phone company. What's that? You know, those things that you dial? You know, like with the rotary phone and you, you know, like one, two, one, two. You can't relate to that, right? It's before your time. I know, I know. We have smarter phones now in these days. They call them smartphones. Listen, back in the day, those poles that you now see that are not used for anything, they used to have phone lines on them. These wires and people used to service those lines and they would climb up and and work with the wires and fix things. And they would come to your house and put a little box in there. There was no Wi-Fi. There was none of that. I know it sounds prehistoric. Call me a dinosaur. Listen, I'm telling you, this actually happened. It's true. It's as true as Jesus and Christmas. And so this friend of mine worked for the telephone company and he worked out of a hub in Long Island City, New York, which is Queens. And so his office was there and he would drive to work every day. And his routine, according to this guy, was he would go to this little diner before he clocked in and he would pick up a breakfast sandwich and a tall cup of black coffee. No sugar. It's the best way to drink it. There's no carbs in it. (laughs) So listen, he would get his glass, big cup of coffee, his sandwich. He would sit down with his newspaper and he'd read the paper. He says, one day that this guy comes up to his table and he's telling me this, he's got tears in his eyes because he learned something that day. He learned what Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 is referring to. This guy comes to his table. He says, hey, man, can you spare me some change, man? Can you help me out? And he says, oh, yeah, sure. He says, I'm one, I, I'm one of those guys that I keep a whole bunch of change in this one pocket. He says, I go in there and I pull out a couple of pennies, a couple of dimes, and maybe a quarter or two. And he says, here you go, man. Have a good day. He says, and he sits, he gets back to his paper, and the guy says to him, where I come from, the streets are paved with gold, and there's much more than this. He says that he looked up, and all of a sudden, this guy was gone. Let me just share a thought with you. Is it possible that maybe you've been missing God this whole time? And he's been sitting right next to you. He's been talking to you. He's been trying to encourage you. He's been trying to show you something. And here's what he's saying, man. I'm just trying to show you what hope really is. I'm trying to show you what your life 
is meant for. Can I say something to you young people? Trust me, I can relate to you. I was that kid said, stop nagging me already. Oh my God, my mom, she just be sweating me, yo. <laughs> I was that kid. My God, she's just like all on top. Just leave me alone. Close, my, close the door to my room. Leave me. I was that kid. Can you tell? <laughs> And there were times when my mother would say things and, you know, I would get mad. And it wasn't because it wasn't the truth. It was because I thought I knew better. I thought that in my world, I had it all figured out. Can I say something to you, husband? Personal experience. I'm that guy that listens to formulate my response. While my wife is starting to tell me what she's thinking, I go, yeah, but you know, you got to do it like this and do it like that. And she wasn't even talking about that. Can I tell you something, wife? I know it's hard sometimes to, to trust the God in your husband and trust that the Holy Spirit still does work in him. And is speaking to him and leading him. Can, can I just encourage you? Take a moment to take a step back. And let God do what he does best. Let him work. You know what you and I do? Make room. Make room. Make room in your life for God. You know, the innkeeper that took them in was in the same situation, the same predicament like everyone else in Bethlehem. He had no room. He was just as packed as everyone else. But listen closely. He made room. He made room. Well, good point, preacher, but how does that apply to my life? This guy had to make some decisions. He had to go back to the boss of the house. You know who that is, right? The wife, right? Don't buy the lie, guys. It's the wife. Trust me. You might be the head, but you need that body to accomplish anything. And he goes, baby, you know, it's this family, you know, she's about to give birth. And, and then there's all the people who have their animals stored there. I don't want a woman giving birth to her child with my mule and my donkey and my horses. I don't want all that stuff on the head. No, he had to push some things aside. See, it's not a matter of if we have room for Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. It's a matter of if we make room for Jesus. If we make room in our lives. And I want to encourage you. I, I get it. Listen, we've got busy schedules. We've got busy lives. We've got multiple responsibilities. We've got all these dreams and these pursuits that we ourselves are seeking. But the truth is that we can always make room if we choose to. Today, you came here for whatever reason. 
and I'm not supposing what you were expecting. But my prayer is that your experience would be the same as the one that the Christmas story reveals. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. This innkeeper, he didn't have room, but he made room. He pushed some things aside. He made some sacrifices. And the thing about it is this, that everyone had the same opportunity as this innkeeper to embrace Joseph and Mary and receive and witness the miracle of the birth of the Savior in their lives. To see the hope and the dreams and the, and, and the provision and the, and the future that it all provided. They all had the same opportunity. The difference is this one innkeeper opened the door. He opened the door. And what I love about this is that the scriptures declare that when God announced this to the world, that the Savior was coming, there was a group of guys who were shepherds. And I don't have time to get into this, but shepherds back in those days were people that were looked down upon. They were deemed untrustworthy. They were deemed unceremonially clean. Uh, they were looked down upon by relig the religious elite and society as a whole. And God shows up to them. He didn't go to a church. He didn't go to a prophet. He didn't go to pastor such and such or whoever. No. He shows up and he tells the shepherds, hey, here's the good news. I'm establishing peace with all men. Now go and see. Now check this out. This innkeeper makes room in his home for Jesus. And at the birth of Christ, watch what God did. He made room for shepherds to come and see. What does that mean? There is no one excluded from the room that God will make in your life and through your life. God is looking to do some amazing things in you. As we close here today, I want you to consider two things. That when you make room for God, not only does he make room for you, he makes room for all. He makes room for all. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, reading from the message version, says this. What am I getting at, friends? It's that you should simply keep on doing what you've done from the beginning. When I was living among you, you lived in responsive obedience. Now that I'm separated from you, keep it up. Better yet, redouble your efforts. Let me just stop right there for a moment. The Apostle Paul here is speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's saying to these people, look, you've made room for Christ in your life. And now because you've made room, stick with that. Maybe Jesus isn't your thing, but today there's something different about what you're hearing about God. Listen to what he says. Now that you've heard this, now that you've responded to this, he says, redouble your efforts. Be energetic in your life of salvation. In other words, do something with this salvation. Do something with this gift, with this message of Christ, this Christmas, this gift from God to you, this hope, this dream, this strength, this healing, this power, this leading, this guidance. He says, be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. 
That energy is God's energy. Listen closely. An energy deep within you. God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. Hey, let me remind you of something. Sir, ma'am, young man, young woman. God is at work in your life right now. And his will and his purposes and what he's doing in you is for his good pleasure. But listen, it's also for yours. Let's stand here today. I want to encourage you this morning as we wrap up to consider this simple truth. God loves you. God is with you. And God invites you to know him personally. And he only asks for one thing. Just make room for me. And watch the room that I make in your life and through your life. Watch the good things that I have in store for you. I'm telling you that I'm telling you that there's some of you here today that you are on the verge of life change. You've been seeking. You've been asking questions. You've been frustrated. This whole God thing has not made sense to you. And today God is shifting and moving and pushing aside certain things. And he's saying, I've been here the whole time with you. With you. With you. Would you make room for him? Would you push some things aside?